Chapter 112 The Blacksmith Availing himself of the mild, summer-cool weather that now reigned in these latitudes, and in preparation for the peculiarly active pursuits shortly to be anticipated, Perth, the begrimed, blistered old blacksmith, had not removed his portable forge to the hold again after concluding his contributory work for Ahab's leg, but still retained it on deck, fast lashed to ring bolts by the foremast. Being now almost incessantly invoked by the headsmen and harpooners and bowsmen to do some little job for them, altering or repairing or new shaping their various weapons and boat furniture, often he would be surrounded by an eager circle, all waiting to be served, holding boat spades, pikeheads, harpoons, and lances, and jealously watching his every sooty movement as he toiled. Nevertheless, this old man's was a patient hammer, wielded by a patient arm. No murmur, no impatience, no petulance did come from him. Silent, slow, and solemn, bowing over still further his chronically broken back, he told away, as if toil were life itself, and the heavy beating of his hammer the most heavy beating of his heart. And so it was, most miserable. A peculiar walk in this old man, a certain slight but painful appearing yawing in his gait, had in an early period of the voyage excited the curiosity of the mariners. And to the inopportunity of their persisted questionings, he had finally given in. And so it came to pass that everyone now knew the shameful story of his wretched fate. Belated and not innocently, one bitter winter's midnight, on the road running between two country towns, The blacksmith half-stupidly felt the deadly numbness stealing over him and sought refuge in a leaning, dilapidated barn. The issue was the loss of the extremities of both feet. Out of this revelation, part by part, at last came out the four acts of the gladness and the one long, as yet uncatastrophied fifth act of the grief of his life's drama. He was an old man who, at the age of nearly sixty, had postponedly encountered that thing in sorrow's technicals called ruin. He had been an artisan of famed excellence and with plenty to do, owned a house and garden, embraced a youthful daughter-like loving wife, and three blithe, ruddy children. Every Sunday went to a cheerful-looking church planted in a grove. But one night, under cover of darkness, and further concealed in a most cunning disguisement. A desperate burglar slid into his happy home and robbed them all of everything. And darker yet to tell, the blacksmith himself did ignorantly conduct this burglar into his family's heart. It was the bottle conjurer. Upon the opening of that fatal cork, forth flew the fiend and shriveled up his home. Now, for prudent, most wise, and economic reasons, the blacksmith's shop was in the basement of his dwelling, but with a separate entrance to it, so that always had the young and loving healthy wife listened with no unhappy nervousness, but with vigorous pleasure, to the stout ringing of her young-armed old husband's hammer, whose reverberations, muffled by passing through the floors and walls, came up to her, not unsweetly in her nursery, and so to stout labor's iron lullaby, the blacksmith's infants were rocked to slumber. Oh, woe on woe, 
O death, why canst thou not sometimes be timely? Hadst thou taken this old blacksmith to thyself, ere his full ruin came upon him, then had the young widow had a delicious grief, and her orphans a truly venerable, legendary sire to dream of in their after years. And all of them a care-killing competency. But death plucked down some virtuous elder brother, on whose whistling daily toil solely hung the responsibilities of some other family, and left the worse than useless old man standing till the hideous rot of life should make him easier to harvest. Why tell the whole? The blows of the basement hammer every day grew more and more between, and each blow every day grew fainter than the last. The wife sat frozen at the window with tearless eyes, glitteringly gazing into the weeping faces of her children. The bellows fell. The forge choked up with cinders. The house was sold. The mother dived down into the long churchyard grass. Her children twice followed her thither, and the houseless, familyless old man staggered off a vagabond in crepe, his every woe unreverenced, his gray head a scorn to flaxen curls. Death seems the only desirable sequel for a career like this. But death is only a launching into the region of the strange untried. It is but the first salutation to the possibilities of the immense remote, the wild, the watery, the unshored. Therefore, to the death-longing eyes of such men, who still have left in them some interior compunctions against suicide, does the all-contributed and all-receptive ocean alluringly spread forth his whole plane of unimaginable, taking terrors and wonderful new life adventures. And from the hearts of infinite pacifics, the thousand mermaids sing to them, Come hither, broken-hearted. Here is another life without the guilt of intermediate death. Here are wonders supernatural, without dying for them. Come hither, bury thyself in a life which, to your now equally abhorred and abhorring, landed world is more oblivious than death. Come hither, put up thy gravestone too within the churchyard, and come hither till we marry thee. Hearkening to these voices east and west by early sunrise and by fall of eve, the blacksmith's soul responded, I, I come. And so Perth went a-wailing. Chapter 113 The Forge With matted beard and swathed in a bristling sharkskin apron, about midday Perth was standing between his forge and anvil, the latter placed upon an ironwood log, with one hand holding a pikehead in the coals and with the other at his forge's lungs, when Captain Ahab came along carrying in his hand a small, rusty-looking leathern bag. While yet a little distance from the forge, Moody Ahab paused, till at last Perth, withdrawing his iron from the fire, began hammering it upon the anvil, the red mass sending off the sparks in thick, hovering flights, some of which flew close to Ahab. "'Are these thy mother Carrie's chickens, Perth? They are always flying in thy wake.' "'Birds of good omen, too, but not to all. "'Look here, they burn. "'But thou, thou livest among them without a scorch. "'Because I am scorched all over, Captain Ahab,' answered Perth, 
resting for a moment on his hammer. I am past scorching. Not easily canst thou scorch a scar. Well, well, no more. Thy shrunk voice sounds too calmly, sanely woeful to me. In no paradise myself I am impatient of all misery of others that is not mad. Thou shouldest go mad, blacksmith. Say, why dost thou not go mad? How canst thou endure without being mad? Do the heavens yet hate thee, that thou canst not go mad? What wert thou making there? Welding an old pikehead, sir. There were seams and dents in it. And canst thou make it all smooth again, blacksmith, after such hard usage as it's had? I think so, sir. And I suppose thou canst smooth almost any seams and dents, never mind how hard the metal, blacksmith. Aye, sir, I think I can, all seams and dents but one. Look ye here, then, cried Ahab, passionately advancing, and leaning with both hands on Perth's shoulders. Look ye here, here. Can ye smooth out a seam like this, blacksmith? Sweeping one hand against his ribbed brow. If thou couldst, blacksmith, glad enough would I lay my head upon thy anvil, and feel thy heaviest hammer between my eyes. Answer. Canst thou smooth the seam? Oh, that is the one, sir. Said I not all seams and dents but one. I, blacksmith, it is the one. I, man, it is unsmoothable. For though thou only seest it here in my flesh, it is worked down into the bone of my skull. That is all wrinkles. But away with child's play. No more gaffs and pikes today. Look ye here. Jingling the leathern bag as if it were full of gold coins. I, too, want a harpoon made, one that a thousand yoke of fiends could not part, Perth, something that will stick in a whale like his own fin bone. There's the stuff, flinging the pouch upon the anvil. Look ye, blacksmith, these are the gathered nail stubs of the steel shoes of racing horses. Horseshoe stubs, sir. Why, Captain Ahab, thou hast here, then, the best and stubbornest stuff we blacksmiths ever work. I know it, old man. These stubs will weld together like glue from the melted bones of murderers. Quick, forge me the harpoon, and forge me first twelve rods for its shank. Then wind and twist and hammer these twelve together like the yarns and strands of a towline. Quick, I'll blow the fire. When at last the twelve rods were made, Ahab tried them, one by one, by spiraling them, with his own hand round a long, heavy iron bolt. A flaw, rejecting the last one. Work that over again, Perth. This done, Perth was about to begin welding the twelve into one when Ahab stayed his hand and said he would weld his own iron. As then, with regular gasping hems, he hammered on the anvil, Perth passing to him the glowing rods, one after the other, and the hard-pressed forge shooting up its intense straight flame. The Parsi passed silently, and bowing over his head towards the fire, seemed invoking some curse or some blessing on the toil. But, as Ahab looked up, he slid aside. "'What's that bunch of lucifers dodging about there for?' muttered Stubb, looking on from the foxhole. "'That Parsi smells fire like a foosie. 
and smells of it himself, like a hot musket's powder pan. At last, the shank in one complete rod received its final heat, and as Perth, to temper it, plunged it all hissing into the cask of water nearby, the scalding steam shot up into Ahab's bent face. Wouldst thou brand me, Perth, wincing for a moment with the pain? Have I been but forging my own branding iron, then? Pray God not that, yet I fear something, Captain Ahab. Is not this harpoon for the white whale? For the white fiend? But now for the barbs. Thou must make them thyself, man. Here are my razors, the best of steel. Here, and make the barb sharp as the needle sleet of the icy sea. For a moment, the old blacksmith eyed the razors as though he would fain not use them. Take them, man, I have no need for them, for I now neither shave, sup, nor pray till, but here, to work. Fashioned at last into an arrowy shape and welded by Perth to the shank, the steel soon pointed the end of the iron, and as the blacksmith was about giving the barbs their final heat, prior to tempering them, he cried to Ahab to place the water cask near. No, no, no water for that. I want it of the true death temper. Ahoy there, Tashtigo, Queequeg, Dagoo. What say ye, pagans? Will ye give me as much blood as will cover this barb, holding it high up? A cluster of dark nods replied. Yes. Three punctures were made in the heathen flesh, and the white whale's barbs were then tempered. Ego non baptismo tian nomen patris, said in nomen diaboli, deliriously howled Ahab, as the malignant iron scorchingly devoured the baptismal blood. Now, mustering the spare poles from below, and selecting one of hickory, with the bark still investing it, Ahab fitted the end to the socket of the iron. A coil of new tow-line was then unwound, and some fathoms of it taken to the windlass, and stretched to a great tension. Pressing his foot upon it, till the rope hummed like a harp-string, then eagerly bending over it, and seeing no strandings, Ahab exclaimed, "'Good, and now for the seizings.' At one extremity the rope was unstranded, and the separate spread yarns were all braided and woven round the socket of the harpoon, The pole was then driven hard up into the socket. From the lower end, the rope was traced halfway along the pole's length, and firmly secured so, with inner twistings of twine. This done, pole, iron, and rope, like the three fates, remained inseparable, and Ahab moodily stalked away with the weapon. The sound of his ivory leg and the sound of the hickory pole, both hollowly ringing along every plank, but ere he entered his cabin, light, unnatural, half-bantering, yet most piteous sound was heard. O Pip, thy wretched laugh, thy idle but unresting eye, all thy strange mummeries not unmeaningly blended with the black tragedy of the melancholy ship, and mocked it. Chapter 114 The Gilder Penetrating further and further into the heart of the Japanese cruising ground, the Pequod was soon all astir in the fishery. Often in mild, pleasant weather for twelve, fifteen, eighteen, and twenty hours on the stretch, they were engaged in the boats, 
steadily pulling or sailing or paddling after the whales, or for an interlude of sixty or seventy minutes calmly awaiting their uprising, though with but small success for their pains. At such times, under an abated sun, afloat all day upon smooth, slow-heaving swells, seated in his boat, light as a birch canoe, and so sociably mixing with the soft waves themselves, that, like hearthstone cats, they purr against the gunwale. These are the times of dreamy quietude, when beholding the tranquil beauty and brilliancy of the ocean's skin, one forgets the tiger heart that pants beneath it, and would not willingly remember that this velvet paw but conceals a remorseless fang. These are the times when in his whaleboat the rover softly feels a certain filial, confident, land-like feeling towards the sea, that he regards it as so much flowery earth, and the distant ship, revealing only the tops of her masts, seems struggling forward, not through high rolling waves, but through the tall grass of a rolling prairie, as when the western immigrants' horses only show their erected ears, while their hidden bodies widely wade through the amazing verdure. The long-drawn virgin veils, the mild blue hillsides, as over these there steals the hush, the hum. You almost swear that play-wearied children lie sleeping in these solitudes, in some glad Maytime, when the flowers of the woods are plucked. And all this mixes with your most mystic mood, so that fact and fancy, halfway meeting, interpenetrate and form one seamless whole. Nor did such soothing scenes, however temporary, fail of at least as temporary an effect on Ahab. But if these secret golden keys did seem to open in him his own secret golden treasuries, yet did his breath upon them prove but tarnishing. O oh, grassy glades, O oh, ever vernal endless landscapes in the soul, in ye, though long parched by the dead drought of the earthy life, in ye men yet may roll like young horses in new morning clover, and for some few fleeting moments feel the cool dew of the life immortal on them. Would to God these blessed claims would last, but the mingled, mingling threads of life are woven by warp and woof, calms crossed by storms, a storm for every calm. There is no steady, unretracing progress in this life. We do not advance through fixed gradations, and at the last one pause. Through infancy's unconscious spell, boyhood's thoughtless faith, adolescence doubt, the common doom, then skepticism, then disbelief, resting at last in manhood's pondering repose of if... But once gone through, we trace the round again, and are infants, boys and men, and ifs eternally. Where lies the final harbor, once we unmoor no more? In what rapt ether sails the world, of which the weariest will never weary? Where is the foundling's father hidden? Our souls are like those orphans whose unwedded mothers die in bearing them. The secret of our paternity lies in their grave, and we must there to learn it. And that same day, too, gazing far down from his boat's side into that same golden sea, Starbuck lowly murmured, Loveliness unfathomable, as ever lover saw in his young bride's eye. 
tell me not of thy teeth-tiered sharks and thy kidnapping cannibal ways. Let faith oust fact, let fancy oust memory. I look deep down and do believe. And Stubb, fish-like, with sparkling scales, leaped up in that same golden light. I am Stubb, and Stubb has his history, but here Stubb takes oaths that he's always been jolly. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.